0: Hello, I'm Ted Hodgkinson, and welcome to The Granter Podcast. I'm delighted to be joined today by the writer and critic James Lasden, the author of four collections of short stories including It's Beginning to Hurt, three and soon to be four collections of poems including Landscape with Chainsaw, two novels including The Horn Man, and most recently a memoir on being stalked by a former writing student. Give me everything you have. This new book is an at times harrowing account of how his encouragement of this particularly talented student, Nazreen, led to a barrage of abusive emails that ranged from pointed excoriations of his own work to anti-semitic rants. Here we discuss the role that language played in the escalation of this ongoing situation, the stories of Arthurian myth that helped him through a dark period, and why finding a close reader of your work can sometimes become a curse. Hello and welcome James to the Granted Bunker. Um, It's a little Orwellian down here, I apologise.
1: I I think it's exactly the right space to be in for this interview. Yes.
0: (laughs) This dynamic that you had with Nazarene seems to have um, been a very reflexive one and seems to have produced a lot of inquiry or reflection on your own work
1: um she she was she was very uh a very close reader of mine uh it's a bizarre um thing to uh, you know you one wants close readers and yet you know w- when you finally get one it turns out to be with with malicious intent um but i you know there 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 are there are two people in this two main characters in this story There's nazarene who's mostly characterized by her her emails her own words her own language which i think portrays her in some way fairly accurately and then there's me and I, I wanted to get myself on onto the page I wanted to understand what was going on I wanted to understand as far as I could what was going on with her and I felt that I was you know this is somebody I had taught somebody I had encouraged somebody I'd liked I'd had a very friendly email correspondence with and somebody I really admired and I felt I must be complicit in some way I must have contributed uh, in some way. And so part of the process of investigation did send me inward and it sent me into my past, into the things that I'd written that she was preoccupied with. And um, I didn't find that to be burdensome. Um, it wasn't something I would ever have thought of doing before. I never planned to write some kind of very uh, inward looking memoir. But somehow this prompted it. Uh, and And you know once once I began the process i I found it sort of interesting, um, and I, I was you know obviously when you do that you 're always wondering, well, is this going to be interesting to anyone else um, and, it is. Uh, well i hope so <laughs> I hope so i mean I, and, and i, 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 I don 't think anyone would need to have read another word of mine in order to understand at least what i 'm talking about in these in these mm-hmm. moments where I do look at my own work but it was, there was also this very uncanny thing, uh, particularly with my novel, The Horned Man, that, uh, which is about a, uh, somebody who teaches, who gets or thinks he's being framed for a series of uh, terrible sex crimes. Mm. And um, she sort of put me in the position of my own protagonist uh, from a book I'd written many years earlier and it was it was this sort of a rather uncanny uh, repetition. Well, not it was you know there were many differences too, but um, the 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 way she sort of in, insinuated herself into my own work and into my life was had mm. something quite uncanny about it.
0: There's a there's a David Foster Wallace line where he says that there's two types of self consciousness. There's good self consciousness. Good self consciousness, and attacked by psychic Bedouin self consciousness. And I'm just a little, I suppose, concern as a reader of your work that 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 kind of scrutiny, that's very pointed sort of scrutiny, um, on that level would. Um, I hope it hasn't inhibited you when you're putting pen to paper, when you're thinking about a protagonist who, because some of the stories um, are in some ways a sort of um, they're linked to life, but they're they're fiction as well. So there's and. When you the, when that line is interrogated with the, in the way it has been, um, I would I would hope that it hasn't um, adjusted. When you when you sit down to write fiction, there isn't now an apprehension of, you know, an added apprehension of what does this actually? What are the implications for this if, if this goes viral? <laughs> right.
1: No. But but you know um, you know any 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 ordeal or crisis of this order, you know, something that, that goes on for so long and kind of gets to you at such a deep level is going to have a permanent effect uh, and as a writer you know you respond to these things whether consciously or not uh, and it's had an effect on me but i don't think it's had an inhibiting effect like that but it it, it will have had an effect on, on i mean among other effects you know i never would have imagined writing a work of non before mm. it wasn't something that terribly interested me i didn't read memoirs very much uh, i've never been a great reader of nonfiction. But I've become very interested in it, and I've begun to see that it actually has possibilities that, that, that perhaps I, I could, you know, might want to explore further. So, I mean, that's one beneficial thing that's happened. Um, mm. So I feel, as a writer, actually expanded by it. And I, I you know, I feel it took me into places that I, I, I don't know that I would have got to through my usual fiction methods. Um, or maybe I would, but... Um, and... I I felt that I had found a way of of using some of the techniques I suppose or the methods that I that I had kind of accumulated from writing fiction uh, and to use them in in a work of non-fiction. things like you know juxtaposition how you, you you know you can write explicitly about something in an analytic passage and then you can move to a scene that somehow revisits the idea that you've been analysing but it revisits it dramatically Mm -hmm. Uh, then you can reflect on another work of literature I mean you can juxtapose things together and they they spark off each other Mm. and I hadn't realised that one can do that in in non-fiction or I I hadn't realised I could do it Um, and it's very interesting to me
0: Yeah, Uh, it's interesting that you say that your work has expanded as a consequence so when you go back and write poetry now does that, has that changed slightly or do you plan to write more
1: nonfiction? Um, I do. Well, I don't know if I plan to, but I would like to. I'm, I'm very open to it. Uh, um, I mean, I, I wouldn't wonder. I don't have any interest in writing a kind of, you know, straightforward biography of anybody or a study of this or you know, a e- long essay on that. I mean, it would be something more like what, what this book is, which is a which is a. It is completely non-fiction. There's nothing made up in it, but it's mm. it's it, it is a somewhat hybrid affair, and I do weave in these texts like Sir Gawain. Uh, it's not that I would necessarily want to do that again, but there are there 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 are, kind of, there are freedoms available in in, in, in in that I hadn't really explored before. Um, so yeah, I would like to do that um, in terms of how it connects with my poetry i mean i've uh, yes i mean well the, just i've used the gawain story in poems before it's it's a story that i'm very feel very close to and very uh, to me it's like a sort of key text to to life as i see it or to myself in some way mm. you know he's it's the great psychological story of psychological combat and it's it's a story that begins you know you think it's going to be a story of just physical courage a guy it rises to a challenge to chop off somebody's head in in return for agreeing in a year's time to have his own head chopped off And you think it's just going to be about that and it is about that But what he doesn't realize is what's really at stake is his his soul mm. Because he is, as he looks for the knight, uh For the return chop He encounters the wife of the knight and has and goes through this uh, seduction ordeal uh, so m- I'm probably not explaining this very well. No, very well. Um, in, in, in so many different ways, the Gawain story seemed to kind of touch on mine. He's this hero who becomes steadily isolated and turns steadily inward and realizes that his code of conduct isn't quite adequate to the situation that he's in, mm. uh, although he tries very hard to, to, to live by it. And, and, and basically, at the end of the story, everybody says, you did great. But he doesn't think that he he feels tainted, he feels guilty. And he's become a kind of modern hero whose life is 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 inside himself. He's to me, he's like the first Jewish protagonist he's like, <laughs> he's like a Kafka, he's like he's like, he's like a precursor to Joseph K. or something. Uh, he's caught up in an ordeal that he doesn't understand. Finally, he thinks he thinks he does at the beginning, he thinks he knows what the rules of it are, he thinks he knows how to conduct himself in it, but he finds out that that, that it's very much more complicated than that, and that there are, there are forces within it that he hasn't fully comprehended. Um, so, I and it's also a story that deals in the uncanny, uh, and one of the one of the things about this experience, is, as I endured it, was. Uh, A strange feeling of being under a kind of curse, because at a certain point, I couldn't control my own thoughts. I mean, I I felt like I was being compelled night and day to figure out what the hell was going on, how to deal with it, and how to bring it to an end. And I couldn't not think about it. And that in itself was part of the torment, just being sort of under this kind of compulsion to to dwell on it, which is, I think, a common thing when people are going through one kind of crisis or another, or are under a great deal of stress. Um, And you experience it as as something else controlling your thoughts, in a way. You simply can't say, well, I'm not going to think about this for today, because I just don't want to. I mean, perhaps I'm more prone to that than other people, but I think it's something that anybody, after a certain amount of time and pressure, starts to feel. And the, so, so, so it sort of took on the complexion of, and, and also because Nazarene was very good, she really understood insecurity. She really knew how to get under my skin. It was as if she had insinuated herself very deep into my own psyche. Mm. And um, but I don't have terms to talk about. I don't. I'm not superstitious. I don't. Re- I don't believe in magic or religion or anything like that. But I wanted to get at these kinds of feelings. I wanted to find a vocabulary for it or, or, or at least a kind of uh, narrative syntax that could deal with it, I suppose, mm-hmm. would, be, would be the term. And again, Sir Gawain has that in it. And so I felt that if I can weave the journey that he takes across England, looking, looking for the kind of culmination scene of, of his story with my journey across America, it might be a kind of interesting thing to do, and that's what I try to do. So the story, the the second part of the book, which is my attempt to portray myself, Mm. uh, I just Mm. describe my train journey, where I'm just in situations talking to people, meeting people, reading things, thinking about things. Um, I wove that into the Gawain story, and I found that to be an interesting thing to do, and in many ways that's one of the things that just if I look at it as a purely literary text um, rather than a kind of memoir or something that I feel most pleased with.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, um, One of the things that certainly strikes me as being um, related in the stories is the way that there's a time frame or that there's a promise of some point the axe will fall. Um, That's the terrifying thing that no matter how you position your mind, no matter how you prepare yourself mentally, at some point in the future that you know, going will face the Green Knight, and at some point his head will roll. Basically, that's, that's going to happen, he knows that's going to happen, and it's that which, as you say, completely swamps all other thought, isn't it? It's the and being chivalric in that position when you know, in some sense, that the axe has already fallen. I mean, that's what is so interesting. You made the comparison with Kafka, because I feel like. In Kafka there are always two timelines there's the near at hand and then there's the deferred sort of end point and that there's that double sense that you're both in the journey in the book that you're you're taking you've already reached the end point but you're journeying to sort of get away from it if that makes sense
1: yeah yes and i i mean that that also uh, connects to the the question of how you end a story like that um one that you know in a in a way has no ending and in another way has only kind of catastrophe as it, as it's ending and um and then there's just the pragmatic matter that my that this particular story of Nazarene and me is not over I mean you know I don't know what's going to happen and um you know she's this force out there that is I feel uh, an ambush waiting to happen uh, in some way, but perhaps not. I mean, the book is not in any way an attack on her. It's uh, I try to be very understanding of her, to empathize with her, to, well, at least try to see the situation from her point of view to the degree that I can. Um, and it's conceivable that, you know, she 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 won't be provoked by it, that in fact it'll clarify things for her. But who knows? I don't know. It's it's great mystery. It's a mystery that's, you know not one that fills me with joy to com- contemplate. It fills me with dread. Mm. And um, that's something that I had to take on when when it came to finally committing to publish the book, mm. uh, was that, that yes, there's, there's this sort of hermetic world of a book as a work of literature, but actually this is a rather different thing. This is connecting with, with something ongoing with another human being who's out there and has her own reality and i i i don't know a precedent for this um it's not something i did with any kind of uh, it's, i mean it's, it, it, i you know i didn't this is not a book i would have wanted to write <laughs> or uh, at any, in any way at all but it's one that i felt compelled to write and ultimately i also felt compelled to publish it Yes. Well, those are two separate things. I mean, there was the writing of it, which was just interesting and liberating. But even as I was writing it, I wasn't sure that it was something to publish.
0: Mm. No, I mean, there's there's a lot there. But I think you do represent her as a writer, and you do give her. I mean, there's certainly a writerly voice that she has when she's not being, um, uh, when she's at her less venomous, let's say, when she's she's um, building up to that point, but you said interestingly there that that there's no precedent here and that this was a necessary book and we haven't really touched on the online component of this yet and how extremely malleable identity can be online one of the things that happens in the book and indeed happened in real life was that Nazarene would assume your identity in some cases sending emails as you or adjusting biographies of you to the extent that your website at some point had you know this is actually the real James Aston website you know and um it still does (laughs) and the uh when um when I when I read this book I was it, it it definitely struck me that this is as you say a book without a precedent because at this point um literature is not as hermetically sealed um, as it was. Um, we're surrounded here by print editions of the magazine. Um, and yet uh the your online presence even on Granta, I did actually check that it hadn't been, you know, doctored her and not that um she would have had to get my login so that would have been even more frightening. But um there is this terrifying sense that that um identity is much more fluid and um, how do you as you say um, does that does that fill you with dread or does that make you feel like this is an exciting time to be publishing
1: well it's certainly something big and new and it has to be addressed has to be reckoned with um, you know the internet is this absolutely new medium that can do things that have never been done before you can completely falsify who you are you can create this oh, This uh, you, w- put it this way, you have to now reckon with the fact that you have your real self in all its different layers but you now have a, your internet self, uh, which is this thing that's not c- in your control uh, you, can, you can help it along you can enhance it, you can try to be truthful, but you don't have ultimate control over it, other people do it's this layer of self that is really in the hands of other people, and what interested me about that was that that you know that's connected with the uh, the old sort of antique idea of reputation uh, this this part of yourself that isn't in your control but which you which is extremely precious and important to you or used to be in 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 sort of past times uh, it's to me the internet has revived the concept uh, the the the, the valency of the this this idea of, of the old idea of reputation um, as this very vulnerable thing, emanation of yourself, uh, that that other people can damage, uh, and that you need to guard. And I don't know where that story, where that's going to go. I mean, I think it's something that is beginning to be taken very seriously in in the in the the realm of s- schools, cyberbullying, and things like that, where you you know you've already got victims who 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 you know have killed themselves uh, out of. Just the sheer awfulness of, of of that kind of torment, and I think that things will evolve um, legally, socially. Um, I, I, I'm not in favour of kind of policing the internet or anything like that, but I think that there are already rules and laws about defamation that that need you know people need to wake up to the fact that the internet has, has you know plays a part in those, and, and you know if people are abusing you there they should be subject to the same laws of libel as they are anywhere else, but it 's very difficult you know it 's happening you know the the internet it 's such an enormous phenomenon it 's as big as life itself, so i don 't know what the answer is, but I think it 's going to be talked about for quite a bit
0: it 's just interesting that that comments seem to have become an addendum to fiction itself or to, to literature itself.
1: Well, that's part of the porousness that you that you were talking about, that the internet has brought. I mean, yes, it doesn't end with your review. It's now your review mm. plus what they, I, I just discovered it, call the bang tail. Uh, mm. um, often un, very unpleasant comments. Um, and yeah, I mean, the internet has been, I don't know whether the internet has, um, Created a whole new category of meanness that was sort of just waiting for it, um, or I, I, well, I mean, I, I don't know if there was that kind of meanness out there, or or if the internet somehow f- created it. Mm. That is to say, did it facilitate something that, that didn't have a means of expression before, or has the means of expression suddenly given people the idea? Oh, I can, I can go and go and say something really mean, uh, mm-hmm. really unpleasant, really defamatory. Um, likewise with stalking, I mean, I don't know whether some of the people who use the internet, to, uh, who do cyber stalking, I don't know whether they would have s- been stalkers before. I, I think it's a very different activity physically following someone around, mm-hmm. stalking them physically. You don't
0: have to buy binoculars anymore. Exactly,
1: and you're not exposing yourself physically to any any danger yourself on the internet, whereas to, to do kind of classic stalking you were. even phone stalking I think is different from internet stalking because you're just by putting things into speech you're making a commitment to them that, that, that somehow typing them out and hitting sand isn't that's so unfiltered, that. That's like psyche to psyche uh, when you're emailing someone or when you're posting things online. It doesn't go through any of the kinds of filters that might inhibit you otherwise. Mm. So I think people who might, might have been too frightened to physically stalk and too inhibited to do phone stalking are finding that the Internet actually is just irresistible. Uh, and they can do it, and they can do it with total impunity. They can do it with, if they want. They can do it with total anonymity. Uh, they can create havoc in people's lives. They can pretend they're somebody they're not, uh, or they can be who they want to be. And I think particularly people who've, whose image of themselves is of somebody very unempowered, can be massively empowered by the internet. Now that, you know, just looked at abstractly, it can be a great thing. I mean, you know, it's, it, it's, a, it's a democratizing agent mm-hmm, in that, mm-hmm. in a way. And I, you know, of course, that's, that's good. But you can see the kind of problems that it brings with it. Mm. So I was interested in those kinds of situations. And then, and then from life, I had the story of D.H. Lawrence, who um, was brought to Taos by Mabel Dodge Lewin who wanted to have an affair with him. He arrived there with his wife, Frida, and she set about trying to seduce him. And as Nazarene did with me, she asked him to work on her novel with, with him. And there's this very f- touching, I find, comical scene of, you know, the author of Lady Chatterley's Lover being led up to Mabel's bedroom by to work on her novel by Mabel uh, in, a, in a kind of... Uh, White cashmere robe, apparently, with nothing on underneath it, and him suddenly realizing the gravity of the situation he's got himself into, and realizing that you know he needs to he needs to declare that he's actually, you know, I think what he says he sort of mutters, "I don't think Frida would care for this," and I find that you know incredibly human, and Mm. and and that's what people are like. That's what you know. That's what it's like. Mm. Uh, You know, on the one hand, he's the author of these books that are. Amazingly and beautifully uh, propounding spontaneity in human relations, mm. but then you put him in a situation he 's quite conventional uh, and and he knew that he had to be uh, but i but i so I was using different different stories of that that approach that scene, that kind of rather primal scene in different ways and weaving them into into my story because I felt they all had bearing on it and then there's the one of um in the Isaac Bashevis singer novel, the penitent, Mm -hmm. uh, which happens on a plane where this, this guy who's, who's been a great seducer actually and he's propelled into a crisis because his, both his wife and his mistress have betrayed him. And this has propelled him into wanting to re-embrace Judaism. And so he takes a plane ride. He takes the, he gets to catch the plane to Jerusalem and on the plane, this girl sits down next to him and begins to try to seduce him, and he's very, very tempted. And, it's a, again, it's a somewhat comical scene, uh, and, but different things are at stake than they are in the, in the Lawrence scene and in the Gawain scene, but they, they also touched on me because, obviously, the, you know that's the story that, is, that connects in this book with, with the whole sort of weird anti-Semitism uh, theme uh, that I also wanted to explore.
0: But do you feel as though you've been tarnished by this experience?
1: Yeah. Mm. I do because um I, the nature of a smear is that it leaves a residue. Mm. And it's not that I think people who who know me believe anything that you know believe that I'm a plagiarizer or racist or a f- predator in any way. It's it's just that there is you know once you connect people with certain kinds of Language, certain kinds of ideas. It, 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 you can you can formally disconnect them, but you can't absolutely sort of purge them. It's it's not as if it never had happened. It's not as if mm-hmm. I've never been accused of uh, having somebody drugged and raped. You know, mm-hmm. that's being exonerated of that, or be, you know, being people thinking it's rubbish, which I assume and hope that they do, mm-hmm. isn't the same as it never having happened it's probably a very fine point but and it's probably something that only i only the you know the person at the receiving end of this feels but um it's a, it's a, it, it it is real mm. uh, i mean it's 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 something you do you do feel um I, I perhaps it's too much to say i feel like like i've been tarnished but but i you know it's it's a very peculiar kind of ha- harm smearing mm. and you know i tried to to write about that in terms of myself, and I also wanted to explore it in a, in, a, in a kind of more political or in a larger sense of you know how that connects with, um, particularly uh, you know where I was f- sort of following the thread of her anti-Semitism as she kind of enlarged me from simply I was I was a kind of terrible Jew who had done all these things to me being somehow responsible for the problems in the Middle East. Um, smear, libel, the, those are the, those are, those are the sort of underlying um, agencies in, in antisemitism historically. Mm. I, I mean, the, the, the fundamental um, driving Motor of anti-Semitism is, is the, I think probably is the, is the blood libel, um, mm. where you render a whole people uh, suspect in terms that are very, very primal and are, are very terrifying to other people, and you sort of cloak them in that, and I think from that all the rest of anti-Semitism perhaps follows. I think that's how it, uh, that's how it kind of attains its. Original grip on the imagination.
0: Um, well, one one final question then. Um, I just wondered what you're working on at the moment. I and mean, it's beginning to hurt. It remains one of my favourite story collections, and I'm hoping that there might be some stories on the way. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> sorry, I, I, I didn't want to disappoint you. I, <laughs> I haven't
1: been writing stories really lately. I have been sort of writing maybe novella-length things. I'm not mm. quite sure. I haven't finished them, so I don't quite. But know fiction. How long. Fiction. Yeah. But I also want to write some non-fiction.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, I'm very... I, I feel... You know, that's an avenue that's opened up. Great.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming and talking to me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks for listening to The Granter Podcast. And join us again next time.